0: The following Dharma Talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. Tonight I'd like to talk about one of the ways the Buddha, the one of the maps that the Buddha used to describe this human experience. Uh, that map is the five aggregates. But before we get in, a little inspiration maybe. So, uh, um, I'm in this teacher training, it's a four and a half year program at Insight, through Insight Meditation Society, and many of, some of you know IMS, and it's one of the, kind of the mothership in this tradition of practice. Uh, When people, Americans, Westerners, went to Asia to practice and learned the skill and art of meditation they came back here and started IMS and so it's a, a great place to practice and a, a big practice center and uh, although I've never met this person her name is Sarah Doring. many of the teachers talk about Sarah quite a bit and so I feel like I've known her at least through their eyes And often, um, what's talked about is how generous Sarah was. She was a benefactor. She donated quite a lot of time and energy and money into supporting Insight Meditation Society from its inception, really. And Sarah died about a year ago. And so over the past almost three years now, as I've been in the teacher training, I've heard stories about Sarah from time to time. And about a year ago, when she was on hospice care, having been ill for quite some time, um, one of the teachers, so Joseph Goldstein and Carol Wilson and Rebecca Bradshaw, if you know pe- teachers through IMS, you might know these names, Guy Armstrong and Kamala Masters. These are teachers who are supporting the teacher training program or teaching us, young teachers how to be teachers. <laughs> And Carol Wilson went to see Sarah this during this one teacher training uh, retreat. And she came back. Sarah was just probably weeks or months away from passing. And she came back and um, reported back that she had seen Sarah over the lunch break or something like that. And kind of told us how she was doing, all of the teachers, the other teachers, and all of the trainees. And I just remember the kind of big smile on Carol's face when she talked about Sarah, and she said how radiant Sarah looked. And I think she said something like, uh, Sarah said, I've never been happier in my life. And then for Carol to say this in in our group, kind of noticing that none of the teachers seemed surprised to hear this. They were all just kind of smiling and sitting there, like receiving what Carol was reporting. And it really struck me as just something so beautiful. And um, with this question in my head, like, how do you do that? How do you get there? Right? How do we get there? From this place of having a body and a heart that really struggles through life in many moments, to this experience of Being on one's deathbed, and presumably the body in all kinds of discomfort and pain, and yet the mind, the heart was willing to be, you know, was able to be in a state of happiness, joy. Doesn't that seem something to aspire to? You know, like if our practice can take us there from a place of experiencing great pain and not having to transcend the body for freedom, not having to leave the body or pretend that the body doesn't exist or deny the body its reality, but to somehow fully inhabit the body and still be able to find that kind of space in the heart to have happiness. That's such a a beautiful aspiration. And often we're coming, we come to our spiritual practice wanting something juicy or shiny or exuberant or flashy. But maybe a good definition of spiritual practice is a sincere exploration of this heart and mind and all its ordinariness and finding some ways to notice what's beautiful there. So this, the Buddha taught, you know, the Buddha had a very analytical mind. And he watched his experience and then shared it, and often in the form of these maps so these teachings, many teachings, many maps, that all point back to this understanding of the relationship between the heart, mind, we can use those words interchangeably, and body. And primarily so that we can notice how this the heart mind is. influential in the ways in which we struggle or feel stressed or feel like we're in pain right? or suffering, these words that we use to describe our experience as human beings. So this one analytical map or this analysis of this heart-mind experience is the five aggregates. So these five constituents that make up this human experience. So these ways of, they're really ways of describing the mind, heart, mind, and body. And in this particular map, one of them is body and four of them are heart, mind. Right. So it really illuminates the impact of mind. And in particular, the relationship of mind in our experience of clinging or suffering. So these five aggregates, one, the first one is body or form, ways in which we cling to experience as human beings, the five ways to sort of chop up our experience as human beings, our human, our humanness our way, a way of answering the question, what is this? What is this thing we call a, a human being or a human life? Right. And chopping that up in five sort of bundles. Uh, the aggregates is a word that we might use to describe like a group of things. So the first group, body or form. So all of the six senses, the activity of hearing, so the activity of the ears and what the ears are hearing, experience of body, the nose and what the nose smells, and experience of body or form, the tongue and what the tongue tastes, and experience of body or form, sensations in the body, and even the experience of mind is in there. And then... These four other categories, the next one is feeling, so body form, first one. Feeling is the second one, and not the kind of feeling that we might think, like emotional feeling, but the what we layer onto experience. So instead of just noticing movement or vibration in the body, we might notice the unpleasantness of the body, right? the unpleasantness of the sensation. Or we might notice that warm feeling in the belly and instead of noticing the way it shifts and changes, we might actually notice that it feels pleasant. So the pleasant feeling, the unpleasant feeling, and then this third uh, feeling of neutral, right? Often we don't notice neutral, we ignore neutral, we're kind of oblivious to it, neutral experiences, right? And you'll see this play out in your life probably all the time. The unpleasant experiences in our life really capture our attention. And sometimes the pleasant experiences do, too. And often the neutral experiences, we just kind of bypass them looking for the next pleasant or unpleasant thing, right? So body or form, feeling. And then the third one is perception. And this is the way our minds make sense of the world, right? It's a way of... um, moving through life with some degree of safety, right? We need to know that the phone is the phone and the food is the food and the door is the door and the shoe is the shoe and so that we can kind of do our life in a way that feels functional and makes sense. So the mind is perceiving, all the time perceiving. It's always going on, always happening. And then this fourth category, mental formations. And simply, mental formations are all of the thoughts, ideas, opinions, perceptions, stereotypes, um, emotions, emotional experiences that flow through the heart and mind. Mental formations. And then the fifth one is consciousness. So we can kind of simplify consciousness to mean awareness. It's like, yes, I'm awake, right? And we have consciousness of the five senses. So ear consciousness, eye consciousness, nose consciousness, right? That contact with experience, like the nose connects with something before perception goes like, oh, that's a banana or that's a pleasant smell and it's a banana or whatever, So these five ways to sort of chop up the body and mind, this human experience. Um,
1: Yeah.
0: And the Buddha didn't just talk about the five aggregates, but he talked about the five aggregates of clinging because there's a process of clinging to each of these kind of each of these constituents, right? These components of the self, and these are the things that we really don't notice. We don't notice that we're clinging to each of these um, each of these different bundles of experience. We don't notice that we're wanting more of this pleasant experience. Or that we're pushing away this unpleasant experience, right? And we don't know, we don't really notice so much how this is informing our construction of a sense of I am, of a I am Shelley, I, or a sense of um, appropriation. Not just I am, but I have, right? This is mine, right? This is my house. This is my car. This is my partner, the sense of clinging to or claiming something that isn't really ours to claim. right? And really how that process of wanting, claiming, appropriating, misunderstanding is involved in our struggles. So when our body hurts, for example, then we often get angry, right? Or when our minds are unhappy, we often blame or complain. So this present body-mind experience is actually the actual present body-mind experience of sensations and um, all the activity of the senses when we misunderstand that it's just that, It's just this smelling, tasting, touching, sensing. And we take our experience to be something that's personal to us, like an affront on us. This negative, this unpleasant experience is a problem for me, or this pleasant experience is something that I need in order to be happy then it becomes a process for which we perpetuate our own suffering. And so there's this, right, this kind of sophisticated map, and hopefully I'll present it in a way that feels accessible to you, but it might feel a little clunky at times, and you might go like, what? So just bear just bear with me and see if we can all... Get something out of this that might be useful. So we've got these ways in which we misperceive experience, in which we think that we don't actually we don't actually see these processes at work, and instead we perceive there to be a Shelley, right, a, sh- a sense of self, a secure sense of self. So these five aggregates of clinging really our own misunderstanding that doesn't match reality, which is why we suffer. The reality that these processes are always at work all of the time. It's not actually something that I'm making happen. They're just, you know, we are these human beings are just a flow of experience, a flow of perceptions, a flow of feeling, a flow of body sensations, a flow of thoughts and ideas happening. And because they're actually happening, these processes are happening at, at such a, a speed and we're not noticing them individually, then the only natural conclusion we can make is that there's some continuity and there's some continuity of those experiences and to make sense of that, we call that a Shelley, or a Stacy, or a human, or a me, right? This is mine. This is my experience. And these ways of um, making sense of who we are, you know, we can see how we actually um, we actually use them so that we can feel safe in the world. Right? In some ways, that it, there's nothing to there's nothing to actually demonize. We don't need to reject this thing that's happening all the time. We don't have to reject that this is. Uh, this is the way human beings suffer. We don't actually have to try to bypass that and find some um, find some sense of safety and an idea of of not of uh, of no aggregate or something like that. We don't have to try to do that, but we can just lean into this experience of body and try to understand how it works. Right, like we actually do this for a good reason. So we want to feel safe in the world. The world is pretty unsafe. So we construct these ways of finding some comfort or com- and finding some safety. So if I know who I am, if I think I have a personality and I think it's pretty fixed, then I have this sense of comfort, some safety, like, oh, I know who I am, and I know what I, and, and I know what I can do, and I know how I think, and I know how I feel, and I know what my preferences are. But the problem is that those things are always changing, right? yet we have this idea that we should we should expect that they won't be so do you remember when you were a teenager and just trying to figure out like who am I in the world right and then we have we we get to some place where we feel like oh yeah God, I understand like I'm an artist or I'm really this is this is my contribution, this is my gift, this is my personality I'm a connector or I'm really you know my interest is in mechanics and so we do those things or we give ourselves over to some of these activities not so much because we're totally in love with them which might be true but also because we want some way to feel like we know who we are we want to establish a sense of I am because we feel comfortable there right So we have identities also that we try on. And those identities are also serving the same purpose. So the sense of comfort or safety or ease in the world by way of saying, you know, I'm a woman or I'm queer or um, whatever it is, I'm a person of color or... You know, I'm a person that came from this kind of ex- experience as a child, or I'm a person that lives in this particular way now. I'm a progressive, or I'm a Republican, or whatever. I'm into politics. I hate politics. Right? These ideas of that we use to kind of figure out who we are and how we will move about in the world. But they're always they're always changing so that's one issue is that we have this fixed idea of who we are but then that shifts and now what do we do right do we and so we have to try to figure that out and those identities are actually limited because the truth is that the world is the world is unsafe right it is not comfortable And we do feel the pain of that. We feel our internal pain and the external, the influence of the external causes pain on our hearts too. So at some point when we take up this practice and we practice understanding these constituents of self, the aggregates that make up the sense of self, these ways that we cling to experience, we start to see beyond the utility of our identities, and these ways that we establish our personality in the world. We can start to see that they don't really deliver the goods. It's not that they, we have to demonize these experiences, because there's some usefulness in them. So we can see them for what they are, accept them for what we are, trust that our hearts, our minds, our bodies are really just, we're just creatures who are looking for safety, and that's really normal and then we'll, when we decide to take a Buddhist practice like this we can get we can get a taste of what's beyond that, yeah, and the interesting thing is that pulling apart experience can actually be quite unifying because we can start to see that, oh, we're all made up of the same stuff, right It may seem like we're so we're at odds with each other, we have opposing views, we have opposing experiences, and it doesn't feel like we can connect. But when we start to see each other as just uh, another human being who has the same processes at play as we do, then it becomes a little harder to hate. At least this is what I found in my experience. It doesn't mean that we have the same lived experience, but we can see how we've kind of established ourselves in our own lived way, each of us do that and we can also see how we're just creatures trying to find safety right, misusing power oh just trying to find safety for example clinging to experience claiming things that aren't ours oh just trying to find safety ignoring things that we don't want to see because it causes too much pain oh just trying to have some safety right here. And we can see how, you know, it makes it a little bit difficult to hate people even when our experiences are different, even when we're uh, acting out in unskillful ways, right? You can pick your favorite politician to hate. (laughs) But when we start to see people as, well, people who have established perceptions and opinions and ideas and gotten confused by those and created a sense of self around those and navigated the world through them, then we can go, oh yeah, you're doing that just like I'm doing that. It doesn't mean that I'm doing it right or you're doing it right or I'm doing it wrong or you're doing it wrong. It just means that we're all doing it. We're all doing it in our own clunky ways, our ways that are sometimes skillful and sometimes unskillful, our ways that are um, sometimes causing harm, even though we're doing the best that we can, and our ways that are sometimes creating, leading to, supporting a lot of beauty in the world. So we have to learn to be aware that we, as we identify this I am and appropriate that this is mind, we are actually building separation between us and others. Right? So that's the limiting aspect of using or clinging to self and creating our identities and constructing our world around them, is that we then begin to build up these... Barriers, right? Oh, this is my house and my yard. And now, when somebody makes a mistake and uh, drives a uh, trike through the yard and creates a divot in the yard, now I'm upset because it's my yard and somebody has done something to me, right? Or this is my seat on the bus. And somebody is sitting too close to me and it's becoming a problem for me because this is my space and this is your space, right? Keep your distance from me and I'll keep my distance from you because I need to have mine, right? We tend to judge others, compare ourselves to others and reject things that are not like us all a process of constructing and reinforcing a sense of self. But awareness practice allows us not to take our experience so seriously. Our thoughts are nothing more than an entity that arises and passes away in a, all in a state of flow, impermanent. And so we can learn to become more objective, observers of these processes, right, through our practice of connecting, of getting still, of connecting with our experiences of body and mind like we do in meditation when we're doing formal sitting practice. We're learning how to be observers of our experience, to watch thoughts come and go and not take them so personally. That process of seeing a thought come and go is really, I mean, I can still remember in my early years of practice, like learning, you know, that, aha, oh my God, the mind is thinking all, like, it's planning all the time, look at that, it's evaluating all the time, it's rehearsing all the time, all these ways that thoughts manifest, and we can, it's such a liberating process to learn, like, oh, I don't have to actually jump on that thought train, and resolve something intellectually, I can actually just watch this process of thinking move through again and again and again and actually see it as something that's really natural, right? something that the mind just does, no different than the process of hearing, something that the ears just do, or the process of tasting, something that the tongue just does. Right? This is a natural Phenomenon, a natural experience. The mind thinks. There's no need in trying to make the mind not think, because that's just what happens. So this is a way of touching into the experience of uh, of nature. We might call that not self or anatta, but nature is a nice word because it it really communicates that the ex- that thoughts arise when they're ready to arise, right, and they pass away when they're ready to pass away. Pleasant experiences arise when they're ready for that and they pass away when they're ready for that. No different than winter comes when the conditions are ready for that. The snow falls when it's ready for that. In no time, spring will be here when the conditions are ready for that. But somehow we don't take that so personally, do we? Like, is it a personal problem for you that the seasons are changing? (laughs)
2: Let's
0: say don't answer that. (laughs) Is it as much of a personal problem for you as when the body changes, as when we get sick or die, or get ready to die, or when when our loved ones get sick or ready to die? As our body ages, is it as much of a problem, is it a problem, does it have to be a problem to be with the body or maybe we can start to have a different view. Maybe we can start to, maybe we can learn to or train ourselves in being with the body in a way that's not quite so stressful, right? It is stressful to resist this natural process of aging, isn't it? Yeah. It is for most of us. It interferes with our plans. (laughs) I have a cold right now, and uh, it's had some intensity to it just when I think I'm getting well then it comes back with a vengeance <laughs> and then you know I've landed in bed for a day with fever or something and then I feel like I'm getting better and then all of a sudden boom there's something else that's there a new kind of symptom that is challenging but what's interesting is that and you've all had moments like this too in your life probably many of them that it's not a, it's not always a burden, right? It's unpleasant, but it's not always a burden. Sometimes there's a lot of acceptance, like, yep, the body is just doing what the body does. There's no, I have no say, really, in the course of this illness, and I don't have a lot of say, even when I think I'm doing all the right things. I'm taking lots of vitamins and supplements and trying to feed my body well and get the right amount of exercise. And yet, then my symptoms come back with a vengeance. So I don't have complete say over what's happening internal with my body. I don't have control over that. And in some moments, the heart really knows that. Like, oh. And especially in this fluctuation of symptoms coming and going. Right? It's not a linear process. I'm just getting well. But it's like up and down and up and down and up and down. And so it makes it hard to really demand too much. And there's more of a willingness to just surrender, like, oh yeah, it's really unpleasant right now, and still feel light about it, not burdened by it. And I think this is the art that Sarah Doring kind of was able to tap into some real beauty of like letting the body just be how it is and finding and not not struggling with that not struggling with it much or at all and so again our the ways in which we struggle or suffer or the way when we watch ourselves create a sense of self and moments, and take things personally and claim experience as our own, we should have a like we should a good way to relate to that experience is with a lot of tenderness. Like, oh, this is this is what the Buddha talked about. This is constructing a sense of self. This is missing that the aggregates are all in play right now. It's not seeing those components but it's just constructing a sense of self when we don't see the components that this is the outcome right we construct the sense of self oh it's happening right now just like this look at this i'm a self-righteous person who's having an argument with a friend right i have this need to be i am right (laughs) right because i am right i have to blame you for being wrong Oh, this is this is what the Buddha talked about right now. This is happening for me. right? We can see this. We can see these. We can feel into our own suffering if we can learn to get close using our practice to train in courageous awareness, being willing to be intimate with our experience, all of our experience in life, and then wrap our arms around that with a lot of tenderness, like, oh, yeah, sweetie, it's like this right now. So if it's like this right now, what are my options? Do I reject my own suffering? Do I pretend like I'm not suffering because I know intellectually that the aggregates are playing themselves out? No. I go, oh, yeah, it's like this to be a human being. Can I care about that? Can I feel that? How can I feel that? Where can I feel that? Can I not even cling to this? this experience of suffering, and let this energy, let this dukkha, let the stress move through me, through the heart, through the body? Can I find some way to support its release so that I can taste that, have a moment of tasting freedom, even in the midst of all this yuck, all of this pain, all of this stress? And in this way, if we're practicing in this way, we can't we can't really get it wrong right if we're practicing uh, nurturing and cultivating intimacy training our hearts to be courageous training the hearts to connect our hearts to connect to get close to to really tr- taste the truth of our experience whatever that is pleasant unpleasant or neutral then we can't lose because we can always apply love right there And if we can apply love right there, we're still in the game. And if we can't apply love right there, and we can wrap our hearts around that like, yeah, nope, then we're still in the game. And this is how our practice unfolds, one moment at a time, one breath at a time, one experience at a time. Understanding some of these maps that help us inform and kind of break up that sense of self that we have, and also then just leaning right into our experience as it is and not trying to make it different than it is. The Buddha used a a chariot to describe how these aggregates work, like a chariot, is a concept, right? If we, we'll call, let's call it a wagon. <laughs> we, don't really have, we don't really have wagons either. Let's, let's call it a car. <laughs> so the Buddha used a chariot that was appropriate for that time. We can say, let's call it a car. A car is just an idea, right, or a concept. But the car has all of these parts. So if you look for the car... You might find the engine and the steering wheel and the axle and the frame and the fabric and maybe the fibers, right? You can keep going like this. So, what's the car? Is it the wheel? Is it the steering wheel? Is it the fibers that make up the fabric? Is it the engine? Right? You can't really find a car there. So this is the experience of the aggregates. When you start to kind of tease apart our experience as human beings, you just see form, feeling, perception, mental formations, ideas, thoughts, and consciousness, this ability to be awake. You can't really find a self. And yet in moments when we actually experience the clinging of self, we experience having a self, We can know, like, oh, yeah, this is what it's like to have a self. And I'm wondering if I can use my practice to actually retrain the mind, to retrain this heart and mind to see things differently. Can I actually train the mind to notice thoughts, to notice pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, to notice perception? Oh, yeah, look at that. Shoo. That's perception happening right now. Can we notice these things? Can we notice when we're aware, when awareness fades, when it comes back, when it fades, when it's back again? Can we notice these things? It's one way of supporting our uh, deconstructing a sense of self. Deconstructing might not be the right word. It undermines our sense of self. That's better. So, I've talked a lot. It's your turn. (laughs) I'd love to have more of a conversation, hear how this lands for you, and maybe even start with the question, like, what inspires you about this? What feels confusing about this? What do you feel curious about? Like, maybe exploring more. And if you would just say your name for us, so we get to know each other a little bit. Is it Ellen? Yes,
3: so, it is. I'm just curious how the five pieces of the aggregate that you're discussing are different from what we know as like cognitive heuristics and like just creating patterns out of the world to keep ourselves at ease, or are they one and the same?
1: Cognit-
0: what does heuristics mean?
3: Um, a heuristic is a thing that we do and create in our mind in order to create simplicity out of something. You look at something, you make a judgment, you have, you, you see something and you're like, okay, I know this pattern, this is, my mind says so it's this, so that we don't have to think about the pieces of it, we create the whole. It's a heuristic, it's a yeah. cognitive thing that we do just to make life easier for us.
0: Yeah, it sounds similar to me. Yeah, yeah.
3: okay. I'm just, because it's, that's a scientific way to do it, Yeah. looking at the heuristics and... It sounds the same thing, but like with a scientific slant.
0: It sounds similar to me. I'm not quite versed in that language, so I can't say exactly, but it sounds like, yeah, that makes sense.
3: Creating simplicity.
0: Yeah, creating some simplicity. And miss, you know, it's like that the aggregates are happening all of the time, but we're not noticing them and their components, and so... We, we, it feels like continuity, and the only way to make sense of that continuity is to call it this, right, O'Shelly, oh, right, instead of perception and form and such. So in that way, it seems similar to what you're saying. Yeah.
2: Hi. Hey. My name's Adele. Hey, Bill. So thank you, first of all, for this talk. It's actually really relevant to a thought that I was having earlier today that kind of popped up, and it's basically like all nouns or pronouns are essentially abstractions that we have in our own minds, and essentially it's everything is 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 happening it's just is it's, it's verbing <laughs> for lack of a better word, and so when you're talking about this concept of Shelley or this concept of the car. It's more like, for me, when I'm thinking about myself, I'm like, well, I'm never like this, the person that I was a year ago. is completely different from who I am now, and it doesn't really make any sense that if you know we we're you you mentioned like the the weather changing. Why would it be any different with with the identities that we that we ta- you know attach onto? And so that's kind of just my my understanding. That's kind of, that that helped me kind of understand and make sense of. Just it's kind of like a shortcut. We we use these nouns to have a conversation and communicate with each other, but things are always just going.
0: Yeah, it's just a flow process, mm-hmm. right? Changing.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Totally. And it's good to think of these ways like, oh, how does this make sense to me? And using gender is a great way to you know grok this. If gender is more fluid, then why wouldn't we why wouldn't we switch our pronouns as our experience shifts and changes, right? Why would in using the body as an example, like why would we think that, you know, we have this expectation that our body is going to be the, relatively the same tomorrow as it is today, right? We don't have we don't have this guess that we're going to be radically different. Yet, is every in every breath are we breathing in the exact same oxygen, the exact same air, the exact same experience? Is it having the exact same result on the body? You know, is the body working in every breath? Is the body? doing what it does internally in the exact same way? Well, probably not. So why would we have this expectation that the body's the same today, tomorrow, right? Well, because we think that I'm a Shelley, and Shelley is like this and Shelley doesn't want to die <laughs> or age or get sick and so therefore I'm going to try to help myself, under- I'm going to try to help myself, you know, be functional and not like, oh my God, and so I'm gonna do construct this sense of self in these moments. Yeah, so we have to really practice and give our, and, and yeah, give ourselves the time and space to let the heart and mind really lean into what this means, right? This idea of impermanence or changing, shifting nature of life.
4: Yeah. Thanks. Hi, I'm Bailey. Hey Bailey. Um my thought at the moment is That sometimes I enjoy all those little pieces, not that I'm particularly good at it or anything, but like dissecting all those little, maybe the aggregate pieces of any experience and like really bonding with those and then looking for those different little pieces that I bonded with whether it be positive or negative or neutral and finding those in the next experience or the next thing and sometimes like using those as building blocks to like almost build the experience itself it's like a like a creative feature of like life like it gives a little bit of I don't want to say purpose but like something to do (laughs) sometimes so I don't and then sometimes it's like things are what we make it is like how I feel sometimes it's like if I can take all those little building blocks and feelings and parts and things and just build those into kind of what I want them to be I guess that identity thing but it's like sometimes it just brings like a beauty about itself because like they were there, and sometimes I didn't know they were there. But if I take time to to experience and bond with those pieces that were always there, then I can like recognize and see things that weren't always so clear. <laughs> I love
0: that you're having fun with it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean that's really great, and it is a, a great strategy to take one of the aggregates and like, okay, I'm gonna try to see what I can, I can try to understand what I can understand about perception. Right? And then just seeing, using as an, using your life as an experiment, just like I'm going to see how often I can notice perception, and just kind of playing with it, like you're explaining, Bailey, letting the mind do with it what it wants to, but seeing how how close you can get to the experience of perception, and see what you can learn about that. What is that like? When does it show up? How reliable is it? Right? Not very, actually. Come to find out. <laughs> yeah. Cool, and maybe one more comment right in the back. Thanks, Bailey.
1: Hi, my name is Jim. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I have a question: Is it any? Is this process of like letting things just pass through the kind of like the patterns of nature, just letting them go on? Is it anything like a house settling? You know, I just feel like I have all these thoughts and rambling things, and not all of them make. Even close to any sense, mm-hmm. but they just keep going on and on and getting a little quieter sometimes, and then chiming up and getting louder other times. But I kind of feel like it might be sort of similar to that process of like just you know with it arising when stuff happens, you know, and what, or just when it's time and when it's due, and that's what the mind does.
0: Mm-hmm. Like the mind settles when it's time, yeah, kind of yeah. like
1: a house settles, and it's just going to go through that course of pops and clicks and whatever,
0: yeah, and we just get to kind of be along for the ride, yeah, and watch yeah. it right, and we can notice what influences the mind whipping up a story about something, right, we can notice how that happens, how that comes to be, if we're when it pops and when it settles, like what are the What's the environment, the internal and the external environment like when there's popping? And what's the internal and external environment like when it's settling? And once we know that, then if settling feels good, then we can do what we can do to support the conditions for settling. And we can practice bringing an attitude of contentedness even when there's popping because we can see that as nature, right? So then we can find moments of freedom kind of no matter what's happening in our life and have some say over yeah how we how skillful we we are really because we can learn to watch and observe and then have some choice over how we respond instead of just being bound to our reactivity I think we have to leave it here for now, but thanks for your good comments and uh, kind attention. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.